It's 1.45 on Thursday afternoon. Richie Humble is in the passenger seat of a Toyota 4Runner, getting a lift home from a doctor's appointment. Driving the car is his friend, Alexa Duran. Both are students at Florida International University. At the same time, Sergeant Jenna Mendez is heading to work at the Sweetwater Police Department. She's running late for a 2pm meeting, and traffic is bad. Richie Humble watches as they travel east along the right lane of Southwest 8th Street in Miami, Florida. It's the 15th of March, 2018. Ahead of them, the traffic light turns red, and the car comes to a stop about 100 feet from the intersection. Directly above them is the Florida International University pedestrian bridge. About 300 feet from Humble and Duran, travelling in the opposite direction, Sergeant Mendez sits in traffic. Her windows are rolled up and music is playing. She's cocooned from the outside world. Up ahead of her, she can see the brand new bridge installed by Florida International University, suspended over the backed up traffic. And then something happens and she can't quite comprehend what she's just seen. One second the bridge was there, then the next, it had fallen. This is the Brady Haywood Podcast, a show about failures and disasters. On the show, we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure, and we explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. I'm your host, Sean Brady. In today's episode, we bring to a close our three-part series on the collapse of a pedestrian bridge in Miami, Florida in 2018. Part one, you heard about the cracks in the bridge and how nothing was done about them. And in part two, you heard about the serious errors that were made in the bridge's design. In this episode, we take a deep dive into two unanswered questions from this failure. Just why did everyone ignore the cracks in the bridge? And why did a rigorous checking process not identify the errors in the bridge's design? So in the last episode, you heard all about the serious errors that were made by the designer's fig in the design of this bridge. The actions in the critical member 1112 to deck joint connection were much higher in reality than the designers assumed. And the strength of this key joint was considerably lower than the designers had calculated. This led to an overloaded joint that cracked up badly. This joint would then catastrophically fail when tension was reapplied to the post-tensioning rods in member 11 on the 15th of March 2018. Now, I think it's really tempting, particularly if you're an engineer, to stop learning from this failure right now. After all, you just heard the technical lessons that were design errors. What more do you need to know? But to stop here is to miss out on what I believe are the most important lessons from this failure. And these lessons are the organisational causes of the tragedy. Now, there are so many organisational causes in this failure. And the reality is we don't have enough time to step through them all. And we don't actually have enough information to step through them properly either. A point we'll come back to later. So let's pick what I think are the two most important organisational questions we need 
to ask. The first is how were the design errors missed? This bridge had to go through an extensive checking process called a peer review. This peer review had to be undertaken by an independent company that had no involvement in the original design. This was a formal, fresh set of eyes. But despite all this, the issues in the bridge's design were not identified. Why? And the second question we need to talk about is this. When the bridge began to crack up, why did no one stop work? Why did no one recognize, as the NTSB said, that this was a bridge screaming at everyone that it was failing? Why did work continue? And I believe that by attempting to answer these questions, you'll understand the real lessons from this bridge collapse. But to start, let's begin with a story. The story of a murder in New York in 1964. So in March 1964, a lady by the name of Catherine or Kitty Genovese was brutally murdered in New York. The murder happened at three in the morning in the Kew Gardens neighborhood, and it went on for 30 minutes. And throughout this 30 minute period, Kitty repeatedly screamed for help. But despite these screams, no one came to her aid. Instead, the murder of Kitty Genovese was watched by 38 people from their apartment windows. None of them helped her, nor did anyone call the police. 38 people just watched her die. Now this murder created national headlines, and there was outrage that so many people could stand by while a woman was murdered. And the story prompted some researchers by the name of Biblitan and John Darley to try and understand what happened here. Why did people stand by and not intervene? Now, something they found in the research is relevant to our story. So let's talk about one of the experiments they conducted. They took a group of male students at Columbia University and they invited them to an interview to discuss some of the problems associated with life at a Northern university. But of course, this wasn't what this experiment was about at all. So when these students arrived, they were sent to a waiting room and given a questionnaire to fill out. And once they had two pages of the questionnaire completed, smoke was pumped into the waiting room via a vent. This smoke, which was totally harmless, was delivered in a series of puffs, and over the next six minutes, the room began to fill with smoke. And throughout all this, the researchers observed the students through a one-way window to see what would happen. So what did happen? But when a single student was in the room, they'd notice the smoke, have a short period of indecision, and then most of them would leave the room and report the smoke. Most of them did so within two minutes of first noticing it, and 75% of the students reported the smoke overall. Only 25% didn't. Okay, so that's a single student in the room. What happens when there's more than one student in the room? So in the test, the researchers put three students in and repeated the experiment. Now rationally, if one student has a 75% chance of reporting the smoke, then the likelihood of the group reporting the smoke is much higher, because you have potentially three individuals that can report. But did this actually happen? No. Something very different happened. When three students were in the room, the smoke was only reported by 38% of the groups. So having three people decreased, not increased, the likelihood of the smoke being reported. And 
gets even worse. The researchers then examined what happens if you put three people into the room, but this time you only have one real student and you add two people who are in on the experiment. These are called confederates. And when the smoke starts to come into the room, these confederates will pretend it's not a big deal. They'll wave it away, they'll rub their eyes, even open the window. And if the real student starts to get into conversation with them, they'll not say much. And what happens now? In this scenario, with one real student and two confederates, the real student only reported the smoke in 10% of the cases. Think about that. A real student alone in the room has a 75% likelihood of reporting the smoke, but this drops to 38% when there's three real students, and then it drops to 10% if the real student is with two confederates. What is going on here? So this experiment is called the smoke-filled room. But the researchers did a whole range of studies like this, and they came up with the concept of the bystander effect. What is the bystander effect? Well, we could spend a whole podcast episode talking about it. There's a huge amount of research on it. But it fundamentally means that the probability of you helping in an emergency is considerably higher if you're alone than if you're in a group. The more people there are, the less likely you are to intervene. Just like the groups that saw the smoke and didn't report it when others were around, just like all those people watching Kitty Genovese getting murdered from their apartments. Now, there's a lot of nuance to this, and there are exceptions to the rule, but it by and large holds true across gender and age. Now, why does this work like this? Again, this is a massive topic to tackle, but let me give you a couple of the underlying reasons why we don't intervene while we're in groups. One reason is called diffusion of responsibility. So if you're the only one at the emergency, then it's pretty clear to you that you have to act. And that's simply because there's no one else there. But when there's more than one person there, each will typically think that someone else has a greater responsibility to help. The more people that are there, the more reasons you can construct for yourself why you aren't the one that needs to intervene. Another reason for not intervening is called social definition. This means that if you see others not responding to an emergency, that fact helps to define the situation as not really being an emergency. And this is really pronounced when the emergency is an ambiguous situation, when it's not really clear if it's a real emergency. Because what we as humans do in that situation is we don't make our judgments on the facts before us, because they're ambiguous. We instead make our judgments based on the overt reactions of others. If they seem unconcerned, then we'll judge the situation to be unconcerning as well. And the funny thing about this is that afterwards, we'll be unaware that we relied on these reactions to make our decisions. But what has all this to do with the collapse of a bridge? So let's go to the 24th of February 2018, when the bridge is still in the casting yard and it cracks. This is a whole three weeks before it failed, and you heard all about these cracks in part one, from when they were first identified right up to the day of the failure, when some of them were more than 40 times the permissible limit. Now, we know these cracks did cause plenty of discussion and emails and concern, but the question still remains. Why wasn't work stopped? The NTSB would say that FIG, the designers, should have understood these cracks for what they were, evidence of a bridge that was failing. 
but Fig didn't hold this view. They repeatedly claimed that these cracks did not pose a safety concern. And this all came to a head on the morning of the fair, when a meeting was held by all the major parties involved in the project. So prior to this meeting on the morning of the 15th of March 2018, Fig went to the bridge and took photos. MCM, the contractor, also took photos. And just before the meeting started, MCM showed these photos to Fig and said they looked much worse in real life. So here we have all the major players in this room at this meeting. Florida International University, Florida Department of Transport, FIG, MCM, and Bolton President Associates. They're all there. But no one made a decision to stop work because of these cracks. Why? Well, I think it's here that we're back in the smoke-filled room. But I think you can see the bystander effect in full flight. Now, you'll probably argue that none of these groups are bystanders, and that's true, but they certainly seem to be acting like bystanders. And you may argue that Fig, as the designer, and what's known as the engineer of record, has the responsibility to call a halt to the work. But the reality is that they essentially give up that responsibility by repeatedly saying the cracks were fine. So if they won't call a halt, who will? This is diffusion of responsibility. They all think it's someone else's job to make the call. And there's almost certainly social definition going on here too. If everyone else isn't overly concerned with the cracks, should I be? Are they really as bad as I think they are? And you can hear this thinking in the language that's used in the minutes taken at the meeting. And we covered this in part one. Fig's minutes from the meeting say, based on the discussions at the meeting, no one expressed concern with safety of the span suspended over the road. And Bolton Press's minutes, although they're slightly different, basically have the same sentiment. They say, Fig assured that there was no concern with safety of the span suspended over the road. Apparently, no one was concerned because Fig weren't concerned. And why were Fig not concerned? Because no one else was. What drove the decision-making in the room appeared to be the overt reactions of the group. Now, the NTSB summed up what happened quite bluntly. As you heard in part one, they said, there was a complete lack of oversight by every single party that had responsibility to either identify the design errors or stop work and call for a safety stand-down once it was clear there was a massive internal failure. But the smoke-filled room experiment and the bystander effect tells us that people may not call this stuff out. And simply having a system that allows people to call out this stuff, as they had, is simply not enough. Because this system assumes that people will behave rationally. And the bystander effect says they won't. Now, do we know for sure that something like the bystander effect was going on in that room? Well, the reality is that we don't. We're only speculating. And the reason we're speculating is because the investigation by the NTSB didn't go deep enough to tell us what really was happening in that room. They do mention groupthink in passing, but they don't go any deeper to try and formally uncover the organisational causes of what happened. And without the organisational causes, we can't really get to the bottom of why people made the decisions they made. Now, we'll come back to the subject of the NTSV investigation not identifying organisational causes later, but now let's try to answer the second question you heard at the beginning of this episode. Why didn't the peer review check 
identify the design errors in the bridge. Now here, the NTSB do a much better job of identifying organizational causes. And this is a really good illustration of just how helpful organizational causes are in understanding what happened. When you know the organizational causes, it becomes a whole lot easier to understand the technical decisions that people involved made. So, a peer review of the bridge's design was a requirement in the project. The Florida Department of Transport required that it be comprehensively verified by an independent third party. Now, the scope of these peer reviews is standard, and it's set out in the department's plans preparation manual. So, a few things about the peer review. The first thing is that the reviewer has to be a third party. It can't be any organization that was involved in the project. Secondly, this organization has to check that the design of the bridge is correct. So in my mind, that means that each member in the bridge and each connection in this bridge has to be checked to ensure that they're designed correctly. Now, the plans preparation manual doesn't specifically say you need to check the connections of the bridge. But for me... Checking the connections is an implicit requirement of a peer review. How can you say that the bridge's design is okay if you don't check the connections? And thirdly, they have to check that the bridge was designed properly for each stage of its construction. So what does that mean? Well, this bridge, as you may remember from part one, is supported differently in different stages of the construction sequence. When it's fabricated in the yard, it's supported at each end. When it's moved into position over the freeway, it's supported some distance in from each end with each end cantilevering in midair. Then once the bridge is placed into position over the highway, it's supported at each end again. And then finally, if the bridge had actually been finished, the span would have formed part of a bridge was meant to mimic a cable state bridge. And during these stages, the actions or forces in each member and connection will be different. So, if you're undertaking a review in line with the requirements of the plan's preparation manual, you need to check that the design is correct for each stage of the bridge's construction. But we know this peer review failed. We know that it did not identify the serious design errors in the bridge, particularly in the member 1112 to deck joint area. So what went wrong here? This part of the story really begins when FIG, the designers, were putting together their proposal to undertake the design of the bridge. And who was the independent third party FIG selected to do the peer review? Well, it would turn out that FIG didn't select an independent party. Instead, they decided they'd do the peer review themselves. Now, the NTSB report doesn't say much about why FIG made this decision, but it would have serious consequences for the bridge. This proposal from FIG gets accepted by MCM, and now fast forward six months. There's a meeting between the various parties, and FIG mentioned to Florida Department of Transport that they, themselves, will undertake the peer review. And when Florida Department of Transport hear this, they say no. They say no, because this is not in line with the requirements of the plan's preparation manual. Now, this causes FIG some problems. They'd planned to do the review internally, and they'd base their bid price to MCM contractors on this assumption. Now they'll have to request external bids, and they'll have to pay for the peer review themselves. So on July 5th, 2016, they put out a request for bids. 
And this is when the last major player in our story arrives, an engineering firm called Louis Berger. So Louis Berger bid on the work. And they say they'll undertake the review in line with the plans preparation manual and they'll do a very, very thorough job. They'll develop their own computer models of the structure and they'll include in their analysis a check on all the connections in the structure. So from our perspective, this check should have identified the design errors in the member 1112 to deck joint. Now, their bid for this work is $110,000. Now, FIG received bids from three different firms for this peer review. They got the Louis Berger one for $110,000, and then they got another bid for $85,000, and another bid for $63,000. So Louis Berger are significantly more expensive than the other bids. Now, Louis Berger goes back to FIG, and they emphasize again that their bid of $110,000 is to do a very thorough job. And they stress that before FIG make a decision, They want a chance to get back to them with their best and final offer. Now, we're not sure exactly what happened next, but there was obviously some to and fro between the parties because Louis Berger's final offer to Fig was not the original bid of $110,000, but a significantly reduced bid of $61,000. This made it $2,000 cheaper than the lowest bid. And in addition to this dramatic decrease in fees, the Louis Berger plan was reduced from 10 weeks down to 7 weeks. So it's worth summarising this again. Louis Berger are essentially bidding on a project, a peer review, that has a fixed scope as per the plan's preparation manual, and they're reducing their original fee of 110000 down to 61000 And you can almost see what happens next, can't you? Louis Berger cut the scope of the review. So where did they cut the scope? Well, the first thing they do is they don't check all the stages of the bridge's construction. They only check the bridge in its final completed state. They don't check if the design is okay for it being in the yard or during transport or when it's spanning the freeway. The actual configuration it was in when it collapsed. The second thing they do is they don't check the connections in the bridge. Now, this is a fascinating aspect of the fair. The plans preparation manual doesn't specifically require the connections be checked, but I think there's an implicit requirement to check them. How do you confirm that the bridge's design is adequate if you don't check the connections? Importantly, in their original scope for the review, Louis Berger said they would check the connections. And this is why the serious design error in the member 1112 to deck joint connection was not identified. It was simply never checked. Now, afterwards, Louis Berger were asked by the NTSB why they didn't check all the stages of the bridge's construction. And one of their engineers said, My model was for the structure as one structure. Doing construction sequence staging analysis was not part of our scope. And again, doing such an analysis requires much more time than what we agreed about with FIG. And when it came to checking the joints on the bridge, they said, in the beginning, I suggested to do this kind of analysis to analyse the connections. I'm talking about the nodes or the joints to analyse the connections. However, the budget and time to do this actually was not agreed upon with the designer. 
So what we see here is a technical failure to identify the design errors, but it was organizational factors that allowed this technical failure to occur. And these organizational factors go all the way back to decisions that FIG made at the very beginning of the process when they were being engaged. This meant that there was not enough money for Louis Berger to do the review properly. But rather than turning down the job, they instead accepted it. But they didn't spell out how they were going to slash their scope, which would ultimately compromise the process. The serious designers would go unidentified. So what are the lessons we need to take from this bridge collapse? Well, there are obviously a few. I think one lesson is that we build systems that rely on us behaving rationally. Whether they be peer review systems or a system for people to stop work if they have safety concerns. But these systems failed. And they failed because we humans don't always behave as rationally as we should. And this is why it's so important for us to learn the organisational lessons from these failures. Because these lessons explain why the apparently solid systems we build sometimes let us down. And without knowledge of the organisational causes of failure, it's generally very hard to understand why people behaved in the manner they did. And it's here we need to go right back to the beginning of this series to the quote from Nietzsche. He said, To trace something unfamiliar back to something familiar is at once a relief, a comfort and a satisfaction. And it also produces a feeling of power. Conversely, he says, the unfamiliar involves danger and anxiety and care. The fundamental instinct is to get rid of these painful circumstances. And I think that as you work your way through the tangle of findings from this failure, you're going to feel that danger and that anxiety, and your instinct will be to get rid of those painful circumstances. But while doing this, you're likely to simplify what happened down to just one thing. Because a simplistic explanation is better than none at all. You'll blame just the designers or just the peer reviewers. But the reality is that this is a system failure. The system we built as a profession to prevent design errors collapsing a bridge failed us. And it's only by understanding the organisational factors in this fair that we can begin to understand how our system let us down. And it's in this regard that the NTSB investigation falls short. And maybe it wasn't its mandate to get to the bottom of the organisational causes, but in the future we need to strive to get to these causes. Because while the technical causes tell us what happened, it's the organisational causes that tell us why it happened. And to finish this series, let's remind ourselves of the very real human cost of not learning from these failures. As she stares in disbelief at the fallen bridge, Sergeant Mendes struggles to process what she's just seen. Her first thought is that why would construction workers do this? Why would they collapse a bridge here and block all the traffic? Then she turns on her lights and siren and starts to weave through the traffic. She stops 20 feet from the bridge and she's out of the car and moving. One end of the bridge is still hung up on its support and the other end is a mess of concrete rubble and swirling white dust. Concrete slabs lie flat across seven of the eight lanes. Then Mendes sees workers on top of the collapsed bridge. She doesn't know it, 
but they've just been retentioning member 11. She scrambles up the rubble and finds one of them not breathing. She screams at those below her, I need rescue, I need doctors. She starts chest compressions on the man. Then a motorist who's a doctor is guided up to where Mendez is and she helps perform CPR. Then Mendez, after helping the workers off the bridge, scrambles back down the rubble in a daze. The ends of crushed vehicles protrude from beneath the concrete. There's the sound of screaming and car horns blare. Mendez starts to crawl under the rubble to see if she can get to the occupants in the crushed cars. Then Fire and Rescue starts shouting at her, What are you doing? Do not go under that. And she pulls back and realises she can't do anything. The cars are crushed. Richie Humble, who'd been travelling with Alexi Duran, is pressed forward in the Toyota. He almost can't move. Moments before, he'd been sitting in the SUV's front seat and they'd been parked at the lights. They were beneath the bridge. Then he'd heard a cracking sound from above. He'd looked up and the bridge was failing. And in an instant, it had caved in the car's roof and thrust him forward. It's pressing him down by the neck, but he's relatively unhurt. But he can't see Alexa. That part of the car is completely caved in. He calls her name. There's no answer, so he calls it again. She says nothing. Behind him, people are trying to break into the back of the car, which hasn't collapsed. They're trying to get to him. Finally, they manage to prise the door open and try to pull him free. But he doesn't want to go. He's screaming and crying that his friend is still in there. They don't listen, and they pull him away. Sergeant Mendez then sits with him and gives him a bottle of water. She says, this is not your fault. There's nothing you can do. By this stage, emergency services are trying to do everything they can. There are eight vehicles trapped under the 950-ton bridge. The worker that Mendez performed CPR on is taken to the hospital, but he will die later from a heart attack. He's one of the six victims. His name is Navarro Brown. The other victims are Ronaldo Fraga Hernandez, Alberto Arias, Oswald Gonzalez, Brandon Bramfield and Alexa Duran. Sergeant Mendez leaves the scene and goes back to the police station. It's at that point she says she unraveled and started to panic. And for a long time that afternoon, Richie Humble could be seen walking along the yellow tape at the police perimeter, trying to get as close to the SUV as possible and calling. Alexa Duran's name. You've been listening to the Brady Haywood Podcast, where we examine the technical, human, and organizational causes of failure and explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. Join me on the first of each month for our next episode. So you don't miss out, you can subscribe to the show on your podcast app now. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review 
it really helps other people find the show. This podcast was produced by Brady Hayward, a firm that specializes in forensic engineering and the investigation of incidents, defects, and failures in the mining and construction sectors. If you'd like to speak to us, you can find more information on our website, bradyhayward.com.au. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Thanks for listening.